Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lease with another fun episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. And as usual, we do very little preparation. So I'm going to have our guest introduce herself in just a second. But want to give a shout out to Gong, Lead 411, um, Perception Predict, Vidyard, our newest sponsor who we're super excited to have on board. Um, and just uh, find them. Find them. Find them is the last one. That's right. So we got. We got a lot. So thank you. Please go check those folks out. We appreciate their support. Anna, and I didn't even ask before we jumped on, how do we pronounce your last name? I'm sure you get it all the time. Absolutely. It's okay. It's actually pronounced Kozier. So it's a Polish Eastern European last name. And uh, yeah, it's uh, a little bit elusive for some. That's all right. So tell everybody, you know, what's the organization you're with? You know, um, what role you're in these days? What's your average sales cycle like? Just so people have context for what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, name's Anna Kozier. I'm a strategic uh, business development rep over at Ada. Um, Ada, we started out as a support chatbot function, but have expanded uh, because we want to incorporate the full life cycle within the customer journey, since it doesn't just obviously the communication start when you have a problem, it starts when you're first becoming educated. So we're covering a lot more of the customer journey um, and we work with um, some mid-market, um, but because I'm doing only outbound in the strategic role, I'm kind of targeting our wish list companies that we wanna work with um, within the enterprise space. So it can be anywhere, you know, we've gone to market in 72 hours for some COVID relief packages for the smaller companies but of course, because of complications um, and bureaucracy in the enterprise space, that typically takes a bit longer. So it really just depends on how much research the company has done about their customer journeys and questions that they're frequently asked can depend so, on how quickly we go to market. So talk about that for a second, though, because you dropped a lot of good buzzwords, right? Starting with chat box, right? I think you, you may have lost me a little bit after chat box, but then reeled me back in with customer journey. So understanding the idea of a chat box, but now you're trying to expand it to more of the customer journey. What does that mean? Like what pain does that solve if I'm your mid-market customer um, specifically? What pain are you helping me solve throughout the journey? Great question. So of course the website is the front page of how people are interacting with your business. So imagining, you know, you go into a retail store before there'd be a sales associate coming up to you asking you, Hey, can I help you with anything today? That experience is lost. Thus a lot of money is kind of left on the table for people that are just clicking around that aren't necessarily being educated on what the product is or potentially getting forward an offer that would encourage them to purchase. So that's the kind of, you know, proactive education engagement that we're talking about on that side and on the support side, we're talking about how 80% of volume is typically created by only 20% of questions. So we want to know what those 20% of questions are to reduce 80% of the volume that would potentially be hitting your support team, costing time, resources, expanding wait times, all that kind of stuff. So how did you, how'd you even get into sale? I, I see that you were a, a tour consultant or a tour guide at one point. I wish a guide, um, a consultant. So all the jobs I've gotten have been through just being friends with somebody and they've talked about it and it seems like a good fit for my career. So I always liked the idea of working in tech because um, my partner actually does run a tech company. So initially I kind of thought if I were to go into more of a corporate sales, it'd have to be really stuffy. And if you look 
previously. I, you know, went to school for radio. I worked a lot in music um, and fundraising. So I wasn't really cut out for that. And I think meeting some people who worked in tech sales, they were just really legitimate, authentic people that I want to spend my time around. So I kind of made the jump because uh, one of my good friends, Connor, worked at Ada and said, you know what, I think you'd be a really good fit. And, you know, rest is history. What made you like sales, though? Like, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm not fit for the corporate world. And, you know, mm -hmm. you have this eclectic background. Mm -hmm. What made you kind of go, OK, ah, sales is good for me? Well, I think it just stems back to communication because going to school for radio, um, I actually had a really bad stutter in high school. I was not very confident, but I had a particular teacher who took interest, just thought that I had interesting things to say. So help me kind of overcome that. Um, and it really was beneficial. So I ended up doing some sales a little bit for my college station while I was there, just kind of going door to door asking businesses if they wanted to buy some airtime. And from there, um, ended up while I was kind of doing some contracts in music um, to supplement my income, I would work for a fundraising company. So fundraising, of course, is kind of a different kind of sales. It's a bit more intangible, but I did that for about five years before doing um, the tour sales. And so I've actually been kind of in sales for almost 10 years, which is crazy to think. But just now in tech sales, starting my career. That's funny. I want to go, if you don't mind, would, would you mind talking about the challenge you had with stuttering? Because I think it's it's always interesting to hear how people overcome these very personal challenges. There's Everybody's got something, right? If mm -hmm. not, you know, someone like me, I've got a couple. Um, how did you, you know, so it's one thing to say, hey, a teacher took interest. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other things that you have to do to try to overcome that challenge? Well, it all happened really quickly in the program because I think something amazing that happens when you are in a sales environment is people listen to your calls and give you feedback. And before even getting into it, people would listen to what you would record and provide feedback there. So because I was understanding that my whole class would be listening to whatever I was producing, it really put a spotlight on, okay, how am I communicating this um, you know, what's going to make sense. So I think it was just like really just a crash course in trial and error at that point where I just had to do a lot of research, become really comfortable with what I was talking about in tandem of having, I think, that bit of social pressure of knowing that I was going to present it for somebody. Interesting. So, so have you, as you've moved into this tech sales world, right? And, and are you, I can't really tell from your role. Are you like an SDR, BDR in terms of setting appointments or are you a full cycle rep in terms of business development? What does it really mean for you? For me, I'm setting outbound appointments. So I'm working exclusively um, you know, with companies that would be a really good fit for um, you know, the automation kind of support that we provide and doing research on you know, what their deal cycles are like, who are the main stakeholders, um, and just kind of keeping consistent, providing value um, because, you know, of course, um, when you are doing outbound, there's so many people just like you fighting for the attention tooth and nail. So being able to come prepared and, you know, be at least a little bit interesting, maybe give them another idea, that's huge. And that's something I think that's been really exciting for me in the last year, because I came into it with a lot of imposter syndrome, which I think is something a lot of folks talk about in this space. 
And just in the last couple of months, it just kind of dawned on me that, wow, I am like listening and talking to a ton of CX leaders all day, every day. And I'm really absorbed in this space. And not everybody who's siloed in these companies have that opportunity. So even if we have a conversation, maybe this isn't the best fit. Hopefully I can at least give them some ideas as to how some of their peers have been able to overcome the challenges they're facing. The, the amount of research that you're, you're doing is pretty significant right, in the, in the role that you're in right now. How do, you, how do you combat the feeling of like, gosh, what did I actually do today? <laughs> because I just studied, you know, these companies and these accounts and I made a bunch of notes and all this kind of thing. I, I always struggle with that, probably because I'm just super impatient. But um, I'm, I'm just curious, like, how do you feel like you're making progress and accomplishing things in, in a, in a cycle like that, that is just requiring so much research. That's a really good question. I, you know, have to kind of fight with that every day. I do keep activity pretty consistent every day paired with research um, because again, if you are talking to somebody, even if it doesn't result in what you want from that conversation, which of course, you know, the golden standard is being able to get your discovery call off of that. But even if you talk to somebody who's maybe giving you some helpful insight as to if they're looking at a solution, if they're building something internally, then that helps to, I think, give you that better picture and context once you do get the right person, uh, person's attention in the company. And the, and the different types of, of BDR roles that you've been in, I mean, I'm assuming they require different types of research, different mm -hmm. levels of, of intensity and, and whatnot. Can you talk about the differences between being like a, more of like an entry level BDR versus an enterprise BDR and now where you're at, which is you know, strategic BDR kind of work. Can you talk about the differences between those, those roles? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure if you're too familiar with like uh, the spin bikes or Peloton or anything like that, but I've been really into, um, I got like kind of their um, like knockoff brand, the Echelon, which I've been really um, happy with, but basically there's like different resistance levels. And I feel like when you get into it, when you're working with the smaller uh, companies, like the mid-market companies, you get just exposed to, again, so much great information and you're able to have conversations and book the calls and often run them yourself. So you're always kind of getting, I think, some interest. So it's more about qualifying who's going to be a good fit rather than, you know, if you get a meeting, it's so exciting. You're going to just pass it to your AE right away. Whereas in the enterprise and strategic space, because so often we are working with notable companies that do carry a significant amount of weight with our logo. Um, often just the resistance of getting in there and getting the right person's attention and then passing it off. Like you're not doing a ton of the call and the qualification. So it's so much more just thinking about, okay, what, what's the cadence I should be emailing? What's the cadence I should be reaching out on LinkedIn? So you have to be a lot more thoughtful with, I think, just how you're making yourself known and in what channels and at what time. Does that mean one of them is harder than the other? I mean, I think people think of it mm -hmm. as a progression mm -hmm. and like a career path. And that therefore, presumably, the higher you go, the more difficult it gets. But I've talked to other SDRs and BDRs who say quite the opposite, actually. It's actually mm -hmm. harder at the 
kind of smaller company level and gets easier the higher up you go. So I'm curious your take on that. Well, I just think it's harder because of the rejection. And I think just when you're talking to the mid-market companies, because you are getting them talking. Because there's more rejection or because the rejection is more sizable? What, What do you mean specifically? Well, I think the sizable rejection too, because I was just actually listening to um, the fellow Ernest who I think you guys had on last week, he was talking about how when you do the research and you're so excited that, you know, you have the perfect silver bullet email and then it comes back with a no, your heart kind of sinks because you put all that effort in. So I think it's just the fact that there's a bit more gravity to some of those rejections when you have put a lot of time in, in tandem with the fact that there's, I think, a smaller pool in general of companies to go after. Whereas I think in mid-market, there's just so many opportunities. And I think you have to be a bit more selective. Whereas on the enterprise side, because you're not necessarily working with as many different groups, when you are getting momentum, it feels really good. But it's just kind of, I think, hard in the fact that, you know, no matter what, you are going to get those rejections. And because you've sunk the time in, it feels a bit bigger to you. Talk about, I want to go super tactical on a couple of things. So um, this goes all the way back to where you were starting with Scott around the research stuff. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you manage your day? Like, how do you manage your day to that research versus execution we first started talking about? Um, understanding that you need to have more knowledge going after the, the strategic approach. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, something I've been really trying to do. It's not perfect every day. It's always a work in progress, but I've been learning a lot about stoicism. And there's a quote from a famous Stoic, uh, Marcus Andrelius, who talks about not starting the day on your back foot. And I used to just love sleeping in. It was so hard for me to get up. And I think especially as we've moved to a work and home environment, it's really easy to let something like that go. But I've started just being militant about making sure that I'm getting up at six in the morning, getting my day started around eight o'clock so I can look through the news of the companies that I'm targeting, see if anything's come up that I can tie back into my outreach, then kind of coming to the first part of my day, seeing what activities or what people I'm the most nervous to maybe reach out to. And I think that's a good indicator that, okay, I need to figure out how to get in touch with these people. So trying to just like knock off whatever is the hardest thing first. So then that way through the rest of my day, I can kind of take things as they come um, and be a little bit more agile. Do you, do you try to target a certain level of execution? Like, you know, I need to go after this many companies a day, this many people, mm-hmm. you know, without, without, because I don't think you can dive into this and do a hundred emails, right. At the strategic level. Mm-hmm. So how do you make, you know, do you set little goals like that too? And, and what are they just out of curiosity? Yeah, there's definitely KPI goals that I have just to keep conversations going, even with people who are kind of like outside of who I'd want to talk to just to get information and gain potentially that referral. Um, And, you know, I think, of course, everybody's getting cold called, but I still love getting on the phone. That's what I did fundraising. And I just think it humanizes you so much to just have those conversations that, you know, I do like to spend a good like half hour to an hour per day, just like cold calling, just to see who I can get on the phone, what information I can get in kind of an old school way and following up with, you know, thanks so much for taking my call and just kind of summarizing what we talked about from there. Cause uh, yeah, definitely, you know, being a social person, uh, not having the, I guess the, what do you call it when you're all kind of together 
bullhorn. There's something like that. I'm not remembering it properly. But when you have everybody together making your calls and having that buzz going on, I think that energy is so infectious. So I still try to do that and just kind of recreate that on my own because it can definitely get wearing if you're just sort of looking through these companies on your own. Um, yeah, breaking the silos is huge. I just always try to keep up to date with the people on my team so we can keep that momentum and keep that energy and keep tabs with what's working and what's not working. At the strategic level, right, at the larger level, can you tell at this point, particularly because it's COVID, right, LinkedIn's better than email, email's better than LinkedIn, people are answering the phone, it's easy to find their phone number, like how are you, you know, going strategic after your strategic accounts? I love LinkedIn uh, video messages. I've been getting a lot of great um, just connections, not even necessarily from the sales side. I mean, of course, that's again, golden standard if we can't get a meeting, but I've just gotten, I, well, it helps to legitimize you when you see that it's not just like a fishy or spammy email, which I think in these larger companies, people have maybe a tendency to write off depending on how you're phrasing your emails. But when you can actually see you know, the person and their background and that they took the time, you know, even if it is a 40, 60 second video, which I think is the perfect amount of time just for a quick intro, then you're able to kind of get that conversation going a lot more smoothly than if you're just kind of sending, I think, a cold email, which still of course works. And I definitely use all of these channels, but the LinkedIn video message is what I've been finding really effective. Scott loves LinkedIn video messages. He, uh, particularly, yeah. if they're, particularly if they're 40 to 60 seconds long. <laughs> oh, that, that, tell me about that. that. That's the right timeline. That's the right timeline. There's too many that are like two minutes long. It's like, I'm not going to watch your two and a half minute video trying to oh talk God. to me about whatever, and especially when I don't know you. No, it just ah, drives me nuts. Um, I want to talk about your. I want to talk about the career path of the of the BDR and 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 how you feel if you feel like there is one. Because a lot of people are like, oh, I, I'm a I'm a BDR and I can move up, to, you know, in terms of the size of accounts that I'm working, but then I'm stuck because nobody will hire me as an AE because I've never closed anything before. So does that concern you at all? Do you feel like the SDR, BDR world, um, I don't wanna use the word legitimized, but I can't think of a better word. It's just like, is it standalone enough now mm -hmm. where the progression is enough that somebody doesn't have to look to management or look to being an AE? How do you, do you think about this stuff at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think to a certain extent, there always are those limitations in a career path, especially within, you know, a tech startup where it's not necessarily as clear cut as, you know, you work at a bank for six months and then you get your promotion here because everyone's just kind of flying by the seat of their pants. We're flying the plane and we're building it as we go. So we're all just trying to do our best and make the best decisions we can in the moment. And I think at this point, when it comes to the career path, especially for myself, I'm again, really new to this kind of business and I still feel new. I always have a learner's mindset that I know some BDRs that are in the job for two months and they feel like they know everything. And I'm just, you know, sitting here a year and a bit later, just like, there's so much more that I feel like I can, you know, learning lean off of just people who are a lot smarter than myself. And yeah, the AE role, I think is an awesome next step. Um, I think the account management 
role too. And depending on what other parts of the business might pull at you, I think it's a great way to just get your foot in the door, start making connections. And if it doesn't end up being right for you, then you could potentially make that decision to go up to marketing or move on elsewhere. But so much, I think, you know, the keys are in your hands. You have to take that initiative and you have to know when it's kind of, I think, your right time to poke people on the shoulder and say, hey, this is what I'm looking at. I've been consistent hitting my goals for this long. You know, well, when, is that, when is that right time, you think? I think a lot of people struggle with figuring out when is the right time um, mm -hmm. to speak up or to ask questions or to, you know, demand a raise or a trade, whatever you want to, want to call it. I think people are, are lost with it. You know, I know people are lost because I've had people tell me that they're planning to do this who are struggling in their current role right now. And I'm like, this is the worst fucking time for you to ask for a raise. Like, you don't go ask for something when you're in a position of weakness. You wait until you're in a position of strength. So how do you help people figure out, like, when is the right time to explore these different roles and you're mentioning account management and marketing and things like that. Like how does somebody figure out that being a sales rep is not the future for them that a different, you know, ancillary role is mm -hmm. you're going through this right now. So I want to know your perspective, not old people like Richard and I, we've already done this. <laughs> no, of course. Um, something I like to think about a lot is, if the rest of my life was reliving this day, would I want this life? And if the answer is yes, then I'm like, okay, I still feel like I'm in a good spot. And if the answer is no, then that kind of shows like, okay, I need to either challenge myself or switch something up in some way. And if I can feel like if I'm doing is making an impact, if I'm learning, if I'm genuinely being helpful in some way, then I think there's a lot of good and what's happening um, that, you know, I feel like there's more room for me to grow in my role. And as soon as I've kind of hit that ceiling where I feel like, no, I wouldn't want to repeat this day for the rest of my life. That's when I kind of start thinking, okay, who can I talk to? How can I start, you know, going beyond this? You know, Richard, the last time that I said, I, I would love to just repeat this day over and over was probably late February when we were in Costa Rica. I would agree with you yes. all the time. Completely yeah. agree. So, and I want to ask you this question. You are, you certainly of the time I've known you in this short time, you're very grounded. You've taken things that you've heard or read and you've really applied them deeply and intimately into your psyche and your brain. Um, one, have you always been that way? Have you always sort of been this, I call it a deep thinker. Maybe I'm too shallow. Um, have you always been that way? And then two, where do you find these things? Like what are the kinds of things that you like to self-educate on, whether it's sales or life or whatever? Um, thank you. That's a huge compliment. I really appreciate that, Richard. Um, I, I think I just like, I'm a deeply like anxious person and I know that that's not a good way to be. So, so much of just my self-development and my career development, I think, has been just the necessity of understanding that the way that I was brought up thinking isn't gonna be serving me. So just doing what I can to expose myself to- I would never in a million years think that you're anxious. I don't know if Scott would, but Scott and I are anxious, at least. I, I'm interested to hear more about that. So when did you realize like you needed to slow yourself down? 
I think when I realized I was numbing rather than progressing and so much of the work that I've just been doing regarding self-improvement came from the fact that there was a point, you know, early twenties where I felt like a little bit distraught, where I was just kind of, you know, distracting myself with like either TV or drinking too much as one does. And then I was just kind of left with thinking like, oh, like I, this isn't making me feel good anymore. I think everybody has that moment where they're like, oh, I need to stop this cycle. So from there, I just tried to find people who have gone through something similar to that, um, you know, and kind of absorb the messages that they've been sharing just about how, you know, so much about, um, I think, mindfulness and meditation. Yoga is really big for me. Uh, As I mentioned, getting up early just so I can start my day properly. I think doing all of those exercises, but especially the reflection one, because going back to the question you mentioned, Scott, about like, how do people know when it's the right time? I think people are just so used to being busy and going that they're not taking the moment to zoom out and maybe even reflect or journal and think, you know, is this the path that I want to be on? Like, is there more room for me to grow here? Do I need to be patient? Do I need to ask for that next step at this time? So I think tuning into yourself, there's of course a lot of resources outside is huge, but also we need to know that we're also kind of smarter than we think we are and need to listen to that inner voice a little bit more too. Are there any particular books that you go after that you've been reading? Like what, what's been on the shelf for 2020, right? Everything Brene Brown. Okay. I'll just, I went through a major Brene Brown binge. I think she's absolutely awesome. Um, definitely her Gifts of Imperfection book is one that I actually did reread this year as well. Um, it's the one that I'm really thinking of, but also... Um, there's a guy who's a basketball coach who does also have a sales book. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Scott? I'm, I'm trying to think here. Basketball coach with sales book. I don't John know. John Woodrow, I think is his John name. Wood- I'm going to John Google Wooden? This. Yes, John Wooden. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we got there. We got there. Exposed yourself as a fraud so badly. John, John Wooden is like one of the most famous basketball coaches of all time like ever 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 ever. okay i know and he has all these books on on leadership and teamwork and things like that i would never fully classify it as a sales book though but maybe maybe there's one i'm unaware of well it's more of a leadership okay leadership type of book but i've found that that helps just even in the way that i think about how to manage my day. So I'm not always going to yes. leadership for advice. Um, sorry, it's not a sales book. You're totally right. Okay. It has it been a minute since I, have, I picked it I've up. I've read lots of John Wooden books. And, and one of the things that I found striking about John Wooden books is the precision with which he obsessed over the smallest things. He taught his players, Richard, I don't know if you know this. He taught his players how to put their socks on properly to prevent blisters and how to tie their shoes appropriately so they would never come undone in the middle of the game and possibly screw them up during practice or the game, whatever. Like, I've never, ever heard of things like that before. So there's some fascinating stuff in there. I am going to laugh forever at your expense, Anna, with the fact that you're trying to figure out who John Wooden John Wooden is. That's okay. See, you talk about, I don't seem anxious, but I'm forgetting the things that I even wrote (laughs) down to mention. (laughs) (laughs) You hide, you hide it well as, uh, as some of us tend to uh, try to do. 
I want to ask you, um, I want to push you on something, okay? You talked about how LinkedIn is super, super important for you and your business right now, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, she's nodding her head for everybody who's, who's uh, not watching. So I'm looking at your profile, though, and you have barely 1,000 connections. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that somebody who has been in the SDR role for a year and a half now, three different types, moving up the ladder, strategic SDR role, like, shouldn't you be working a little bit harder to have more connections? And the greater number of connections you have and the bigger network you have, that's going to end up filling your pipeline and bringing you more deals. 100%. I appreciate that as a call out because I definitely need to pull my socks up when it comes to the amount of people who I am connecting with so I can reach out to them. I only really started put, putting so many of my eggs in the LinkedIn basket recently. So I think that's more so indicative to the fact that I just kind of clued in maybe, you know, late August that this was going to be a major um, factor in the deals that I'm bringing in, um, you know, because when I started doing the strategic role, um, you know, early September, late August, that's when I realized, okay, I'm going to have to do things a little bit differently than I've done before. And that's when I really started to make those kind of moves to investing in, you know, doing more videos, the vidyards, um, all that good stuff. Whereas before I was mostly just opting for the cold calls and the cold emails. Yeah. So I'm, I'm now wondering, cause you're just sort of embarking on this journey for the first time. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of different reasons or excuses why they haven't done something or never will. Now that you're looking at it, what's the, what's the biggest barrier to entry? Like you say that you're starting to think about it, but you know, I'm over here thinking, okay, well, Anna, then, you know, connect with 25 people a day. Like, what are we, what are we waiting on here? Like, what's the, what's the biggest barrier to entry? What's the thing maybe that, sales leaders like myself need to better understand and find a way to better support you so you can grow that network faster, if that makes sense. Definitely something that I appreciate learning about. I think it's mostly because the account list that I'm working on is reduced compared to, I think, what a lot of the other folks in my position would be working at since I'm really just going after kind of the wish list companies for Ada that we would want to be a part of. So maybe that comes from that broader scope so I can get more deals in or creating a bit of a higher rotation in who I'm going after. So I think all of those are possible, but something that has been really helpful is even within my company, um, because we are growing really quickly and have hired quite a few people from other startups is, you know, I'll see if maybe somebody who is just started at Ada, who's worked somewhere else that I might be targeting, just say like, hey, can you give me some insight as to who I could reach out here or potentially help with a referral? So that's been really helpful, especially for these larger organizations to get a lay of the land. Oh, so I thought Richard was gonna ask something. I have one I have one other question and before I turn it over to uh, Richard and then we probably start to wrap. You mentioned something earlier about how you were um, doing some doing some things to supplement your income, um, and I've been a huge proponent of side hustles and and people um, not becoming reliant upon just one source of income for themselves, one job. And I think mm-hmm. COVID has been 
a forcing function in a lot of ways and, and showing people just like how vulnerable we are to financial hardship if all your eggs are in one basket. But how do you, how do you best balance your side hustle with the aspirations that you have being relatively new in tech sales, right? You're like a year and a half in. Uh, pe people get this all out of whack all the time and it goes wonky and they like don't invest enough into one thing or the other and end up sucking at both, right? Or they try to make their side hustle something that they're really not an expert in yet. Um, so I'm wondering if what you're doing now and how you think about balancing that equation. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not actually doing it now. I was doing it when I was working in fundraising. Currently, I'm really just focusing on being, you know, my best self and showing up so I can do my best work, you know, whatever that means every single day. And before when I was still looking at, you know, becoming a, you know, music industry person, that's when I was kind of uh, thankful that the job that I had in fundraising allowed me some flexibility to take the time off for those gigs. So to your point, currently, I don't have a side hustle. I wish I did. So I could answer that a little bit. Uh, but what's more the, what, what holds you back from having a side hustle? Or are, are you, I know, I guess, I guess what I'm saying, I understand and appreciate like, okay, I really want to focus on what I'm doing right now and get really good at this particular gig. Mm -hmm. I just, this is my anxiety. I just worry like, okay, well, what if that gig disappears? Th then what? You're, you're at zero instead of wherever your side hustle could be. And what mm -hmm. other skills could your side hustle be teaching you right now, potentially? So how, how will you, how should somebody you included, how will you think about when is maybe the right time to start a side hustle? Like, how will you know you're good enough at your current gig that expanding and branching off to do something else is, is not a, a negative distraction, but a positive one? That is a good question. I would love to have the answer for that. I think, you know, at this stage, it's something I've been toying around with a lot because again, with the fragility of having a single source of income, it's become so apparent how having diversified skills and just being, having your, um, just having your hands in a couple of different pockets is going to be so beneficial. So I've definitely been looking at a few different options, like affiliate marketing programs, things like that, that have come across, as I'm sure you've probably heard of as well. But most of my skill sets uh, revolved around, you know, creating a live music experience and doing production work. So obviously that's kind of shifted a little bit. So I think at this point, based on what I would be an expert in, so much of what I would be doing on the side is no longer happening, which is kind of a shame. So I've had to sort of reevaluate what would make sense in this uh, digital first world uh, to kind of help with that. So I think, oh, sorry, Richard. Richard, you're on mute. As always, um, Scott always mutes me. That's the problem. He doesn't like me to talk. So, um, the, so my question is actually back to Scott, because I bet there's a lot of people who are like this, right? Um, and as you know, a year and a half in, she's passionate about what she's doing. She's taking it from a very wise approach. And 
how do you choose the right kind of side hustle? I mean, if Scott, you, I know you, and I know how you do it, but let's say Anna came to you and said, well, Scott, how do I choose a hustle? What should I do? What, what kind of advice would you give that person or Anna? My, my advice is you do the thing that requires the least amount of effort and provides you some semblance of meaningful return. So you, you pick something that doesn't stretch you, you know, at all. And I don't know what that looks like based on your life and your background, but like, you know, let's say that you were a go between, between, you know, bands and venues or something like that. And like making a couple intros could somehow get you paid like a $50 or hundred dollar referral fee or something like that. Right. Like that kind of thing to me requires zero effort whatsoever. And it's just quick, easy kind of supplemental cash. And so that's, that's how I think about getting started is like, what are you really, really good at? What would require very little effort on your part? And what would bring you some type of meaningful return? Look, even if you made like 200 bucks a month, you know, that's a cell phone bill or an electricity bill or, or whatever, right? If you get up to like 500 to a thousand bucks a month, that might be somebody's, you know, rent check. Like these are, these can be meaningful amounts. So I look at it in terms of bills that I take away or, or this kind of thing, or something that I would be able to save that doesn't require me to work a ton of time and distract me from doing very much. That's how I would get started. I just wrote that idea down. That's I could see you typing Golden. that down. I was like, this, this is why I wanted to ask Scott, because he, he, he always has these great answers to these questions. So. It's because I'm um, always scheming of how I can make a little bit more money with doing less work. That's what I know, right? But Scott, now, I'll tell you the other side. Scott's hassle, or his problem, is that sometimes he takes too many of the $50 gigs a month, and then he overworks himself. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> like I can't even I can't even get you on the phone to talk to you about something important, and you're because you're like having a fifty dollar meeting. Um, uh, so not anymore. Not anymore. Those days are over, Richard. Yeah, yeah, I know you. We'll see. So, and by the way, so we, we do need to wrap up, and and we'll have our last question. But you know, a quick shout out again to find them and lead four one one and Gong Perception Predict. And Vidyard, our newest sponsor, uh, who you seem to be having some great success with, Anna. So, um, but what can we do to help you? How can we be of assistance to you? Well, definitely, um, you know, maybe helping with some LinkedIn referrals there, Scott, as uh, you mentioned. But <laughs> I think more, I think more than that, just um, I think sharing what's working because things change so rapidly, and you know, I think. That, with just the landscape of so many people doing a similar thing to maybe the same couple hundred thousand people, then it's kind of important for everybody when we're growing together, especially in this, you know, role in this world to just have an idea of, you know, if something's working over here, like, let's share it, let's talk about it. Um, I'm such a team player. I think it makes no sense for people to be too hyper competitive. You need that, I think, to be successful. But at the end of the day, when, again, we're just kind of on our own working in, you know, our bedrooms or our offices, being able to just say, hey, like this is working for me. And even just that sharing of energy is so helpful. Well, that's why some of these, um, you know, micro communities that have sprouted up are, are so important because you get that opportunity, whether it's, 
you know, certain sales stuff or Thursday night sales or different Patreon groups or Rev Genius, uh, Revenue Collective, Sales Hacker, all these kinds of places. Um, so I would encourage you and anybody else out there who's seeking, you know, that kind of mind share and community um, to check out some of these, these different. Uh, you know, what community are you a part of or are you not, have you not done that, Anna? I need to do more of that work. I definitely do appreciate kind of the tap on the shoulder here because that's something that, you know, just I think being immersed in, you know, my own company's world, I've just really focused on, you know, the culture there, but I think expanding it is going to be so beneficial going into the new year. Yeah, I would definitely tell you to check out Sales Hacker and Rev Genius for sure. Um, Scott, which ones would you recommend to her? All the ones that I participate in, of course, Richard. Those right. are the ones I'd recommend. But think about our roles. You know, Look, do you know how many SDRs and BDRs come to Thursday night sales every single week? Yeah, Amy and I have been answering questions about the role of BDRs and SDRs for 35 weeks in a row. You know, And there's 150 people there hanging out, talking about it all the time. So I would, I would go there if you want real live interaction, if you want slack communities and things like that than the others that richard is talking about are, are great yeah definitely send it to me offline oh you want me to do work for you right <laughs> hot task hot task you you gotta, i'm writing it down too make it easy for somebody to help you that's awesome uh well anna thank you so much for spending some time with us today we really do appreciate it uh it's been really insightful and and inspiring on some of the things you shared with us thank you Hey, thanks so much, guys.